All right, everybody. Well, if you have a Bible, go ahead and open up with us to Revelation chapter 20. Revelation chapter 20 has got to be the most disputed or debated part of the book of Revelation, I would think. It's got to be. And um, just to be clear, I'm sure this is known by all of us at this point, but I I just want to be very clear on this from the start. Uh, This is not a matter of where Christians ultimately divide over different interpretations of the millennium. It's not something where we say, you're not a Christian if you have a different view than I do on this. No, obviously, all Orthodox you know, believing Christians are going to hold in common that Jesus uh, is going to come back physically to judge the world. He's going to save His people, bring them into a new creation. He's going to judge His enemies and cast them into the lake of fire. Those are things that all Christians uh, should, must agree on. But when it comes to the details of chapter 20, it's something that Christians throughout history have definitely not all agreed on. But I want to say, this doesn't mean that we don't think about these things or that these things are not worth our time. We we don't want to say something's either essential to the gospel or completely unimportant, because there are gradations of importance. And this, this, this topic may not be central to the gospel. It certainly isn't central to the gospel, but it is in God's Word. And if all Scripture is God-breathed, I believe it is honoring to the Lord to take debated texts seriously and to spend time really trying to dig out what the meaning is and to compare Scripture with Scripture, to let more clear texts inform less clear texts of Scripture, to see what other parts of the Bible speak on this same topic, and to bring things together and to work through them over and over until you begin to formulate what you think is a a biblical view. Uh, We don't want to treat people as less than us if they have a different eschatology than we do, but we certainly want to study God's Word passionately and And if we come to a passionate conclusion, that's okay. Even on these issues, it is not wrong to hold to a view uh, with some passion at the same time. So with that being said, uh, Greg, can you uh, open us in prayer and then we'll jump in? Yeah, let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we are just thrilled to be able to study your word. Uh, Lord, what a blessing. Uh, Lord, even as we will get to read a portion of it today, Lord, we know that there is blessing promised to just reading the book of Revelation. And I pray, Lord, that our hearts and lives would be blessed even as we read and hear it. But God, we, we do pray for uh, an abundance of wisdom. Lord, I pray that we would be humble, gracious, charitable, uh, but yet unflinching in what we believe the Scriptures teach. Um, so Lord, be with us in this. Help us have a greater grasp of your plan uh, for all of history and especially for the church age and this issue of the millennium, the thousand years mentioned here in Revelation 20. Lord, help us above all to be submissive to your word. Um, And Lord, uh, that's the most important thing we can do uh, is to subject ourselves to the clear authority and teaching of the text. And I pray, Lord, that you would help uh, Mark and Fred and myself to faithfully bring forth what is in this text. Um, Help us to make sense of it in its context, in the whole of Revelation and in the whole of the Bible. Um, Lord, for the good of our church God, that we might have the equipping that we need to better follow Christ in a a Christ-hating world. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. And I want to get Papa Fred to read the first 10 verses of chapter 20 in just a moment. Before he reads it, just so you can sort of see what's going on, glance over at chapter 21, verse 1. This is after the millennium passage, 21.1. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And those last two chapters describe what 
all Christians agree, is the eternal state for God's people. This is very clear. Now go back to chapter 19 to see what comes right before the millennium text, at least in the order of the book of Revelation. Chapter 19, if you look at verses 11 through 16, I won't read all of them, but you see Jesus coming back on a white horse. He has a sword coming out of his mouth. He's coming to make war. He's coming in judgment. Uh, verses 15 and 16 are very clear on the judgment of God coming, and it says that the, those who were gathered against Christ, uh, verse 19 of chapter 19, it says, I saw the beast and the kings of the earth with their, with their armies gathered to make war against him who is seated on the, his horse and against his army, and the beast was captured, and with it the false prophet who was in, the present, it, who in its presence had done the signs by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshiped its image. These two were thrown alive into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur, and the rest were slain by the sword that came from the mouth of him who was seated on the horse, and all the birds were gorged with their flesh. So a very graphic depiction of judgment as Christ returns on his horse, and then 21 again is the new creation, so chapter 20 stands in between, and the question is, how do these chapters relate to one another? How does this sequence work? Papa Fred, please read for us the first 10 verses of chapter 20. Be glad to. The word of the Lord. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit, and a great chain. And he seized the dragon, the ancient serpent, who is the devil, and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years, and threw him into the pit, and shut it, and sealed it over, so that he might not deceive the nations any longer, until the thousand years was ended. After that, he must be released for a little while. Then I saw thrones, and seated on them were those in whom the authority to judge was committed. And I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God and for those who had not worshipped the beast or its image and had not received its mark on their foreheads or their hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. Over such, the second death has no power, but they will be priests of God and of Christ, and they will reign with him for a thousand years. The word of the Lord. Thank you, Papa. So for those uh, who are familiar with these things, the, the, the most common view in Southern Baptist uh, life, and probably in other places too, for how to interpret chapter 20 is to say, Revelation is basically written in chronological order. And so if 21 and 22 is the new creation and the final uh, eternal state of God's people, which we agree, then 19 and 20 should also go in chronological order straight into the new creation of chapters 21 and 22. If that is true, then it's pretty easy how to interpret this from what we call the pre-millennial perspective. Chapter 19, Jesus returns in the, for final judgment, sword in his mouth, on his white horse, he judges his enemies, and they are, they are destroyed. Chapter 20 is then the next thing in chronological order. This, chapter 20, therefore, happens after the return of Christ. That's the premillennial perspective. G chapter 20 comes after 19. Jesus comes back in 19, so 20 must be after Jesus comes back. And during, this 20, during chapter 20, Jesus inaugurates a thousand-year millennial reign where, uh, and there's different ways to view this, but where he and his people will reign on the earth for the thousand-year period. And at the end of the thousand years, uh, Satan will be unleashed from his, the place where he is bound, and he will go out and deceive the nations, and they will gather against God's people. And at the end of the thousand years, there will be a major rebellion against God and his people. God will destroy that rebellion with fire. Uh, he will bring final judgment. Look at, look at this final judgment. Look at verse 7. And when the thousand years were ended, this is the end of the millennium, 
Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations that are at the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle. Their number is like the sand of the sea, and they marched up over the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city. But fire came down from heaven and consumed them, and the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. So you can see here a chronological reading. Jesus comes back, then he reigns on earth for a thousand years with both, now this is a little strange, with both resurrected believers and non-resurrected unbelievers living together in the same area. And then at the end of that thousand years, there's a rebellion against unbelievers, against believers. God judges them, and then he ushers in final judgment and the eternal state. Uh, Greg, can you jump in there? Yeah, thinking of the, the premillennial position, again, just to make sure we're clear, the premillennial means Jesus comes back before the millennium. Or, uh, yeah, before the millennium. He returns, then there's the millennium. Um, and in this view, especially, um, I mean, d- depending on your premillennial perspective, there's going to be different ways you take this, like Mark mentioned. The most common, though, is the dispensational premillennial view, um, which we'll see, and, and again, not everybody's exactly the same on this, but generally you could say premillennial position, dispensational is, there's going to be, obviously, unbelievers were killed, and some will say that there were living believers who survived the return of Christ, who then go on to repopulate the earth under the reign of Christ, and their children and their grandchildren may or may not actually become believers in Jesus so that when Satan's released at the end of the thousand years, um, there's actually non-resurrected people who are unbelievers whom he can lead astray to to rebel um, against God. Um, But here's the thing. The, The premillennial view necessarily assumes that Jesus has to come back before the millennium. So there's a second coming of Jesus in which all his enemies are destroyed. And then after a thousand years, there's a whole lot more enemies that are going to be destroyed again. One of the things, and I'm not sure how much we're going to look at this aspect, but I want to make sure I mention it. One of the things when you read uh, the rest of the New Testament um, and the way things are talked about, there's not two destructions of God's enemies that take place separated by a thousand years. There's one Uh, one battle, one major return of Christ in which his enemies are destroyed, okay? And we believe that happens, as we're going to argue, at the end of this thousand-year period Uh, because we're going to say that chapter 19 ends and then we go back like we've done several times with recapitulation. We we see it it cycles back to the beginning of the church age, uh, the death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus, um, and then it replays it all again. And so there's one final battle in which God's enemies are destroyed, not one at the second coming of Jesus and then another battle way off in the future. That help a little bit. Well, you know, and and it's just, I think the Bible teaches there's just one resurrection, right? And and the um, dispensational position basically uh, bifurcates this a little bit. I mean, Christ comes, raptures the church, and then comes back seven years later after the tribulation, and then sets up the millennial kingdom. Then there's then there's this uh, discontinuity mm-hmm. in the millennium between uh, even unbelievers that are populating the planet with with believers. I, I've never understood how that works. And, and some people, uh, uh, Burkhoff, for example, says it's just incongruous that that would happen. I mean, how does that work when the when the resurrected Christ is reigning and ruling and they're unbelievers. Well, I want to say there's something we need to keep in mind whenever we come to a text like this. Like we first want to read the text as it is 
Then we want to read the text in its immediate context, like what surrounds it. And then we want to locate it within the book itself. Um, And after we do that, that's when we consider it within the big sweep of the whole Bible. Now, folks, whenever we read, we bring the rest of the Bible with us to whatever text we're reading. And that's not wrong, okay? That's a good thing. Like, we always want to keep the big picture of Scripture in mind, the whole story as it's been progressing from Genesis 1 all the way to the end. Um, But the thing of it is, each individual text should be able, we should be able to make sense of a text of itself in its context without necessarily having to say, well, I've got to uh, always appeal to the big story of the Bible to to, to make sense of where I'm at. And what I mean is, um, those who hold to a pre-trib rapture, they've already decided when they come to this text, they've already convinced, okay, that this thousand years is specifically a Jewish kingdom, um, it's the fulfillment of, of, um, of God's promise in Daniel of the 70th week, like God, or, or after that, this is the kingdom, not, not Daniel 7, but Ezekiel, of, of a future kingdom with a future temple. Um, you know, David in some sense resurrected, like I've heard some people say that David's going to be resurrected and he's actually going to reign um, along with Jesus, but or a son of David, Jesus himself. There, there's got to be this exclusively Jewish kingdom. Um, in which God's promises to Israel are physically and fulfilled in an earthly temple, in an earthly kingdom. There's, there's, you read Old Testament text, Jerusalem's going to be raised up. So there's like some kind of physical raising of Jerusalem as the highest mountain and, and various things like that. That's already been decided before we even read this text. And so we have to see that in this text if we're going to be consistent with that position. One of the reasons why I, I am not a dispensationalist is because as I go to individual texts, I start to see that those texts don't tell me what the system says they should tell me, okay? I come to Revelation 20, and if I say, okay, does Revelation 20 tell me that? That's what I want to ask first. What does Revelation 20 actually tell me? So before I start saying, let's bring all these systems in, what does Revelation 20 actually say? What are the details it actually gives me? And then is it legitimate to to put all these other details in there? So let's, let's look at what Revelation 20 gets us again. Now, we're, we're going to be going through a lot of this, and we, thankfully we've got more than one week. Right. We're planning probably three weeks at least. So if we don't get to everything today, we've got more time to do it. But I want, I want to focus real quick on, look at verse 4, okay? Who are these that are reigning with Jesus? Like, what's the quality of God's people in this millennial reign? Before we talk about pre-mill, all-mill, any of that, let's just think about who are the people here. Let Revelation tell us who these people are, Okay. I saw thrones, as verse 4, and seated on them were those to whom the authority to judge was committed. Also, I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God, and those who had not worshipped the beast or its image and had not received its mark on their foreheads or their hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection." Over such, the second death has no power, but they will be priests of God and of Christ, and they will reign with him for a thousand years. So it doesn't identify those who are seated on the thrones necessarily. I mean, we know Jesus told his disciples, you know, you're going to judge angels, or Paul said that, um, you know, when he's talking to the Corinthian church, um, when they're all confused about taking each other to court. So, but we do have people in, uh, identified here. And who are the people identified? The people identified are those who've come through the great tribulation and conquered the beast. I mean, it's those who have what? What does it say in verse 
uh, verse 5, the souls of those who had been, he- been beheaded, or verse 4, beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God. So those who'd actually been killed for their faith and their preaching of the gospel, and then those who had not worshiped the beast or its image and had not received them, its mark on their foreheads or their hands. So who, who is experiencing this millennium? Who, whoever it is and whatever the quality of it is and the reigning means, who is it that's actually doing this? It's the Christians who stayed faithful unto death, whether through actual martyrdom or to the end of their, their, di- their days, they never worship the beast. Okay, that's who the people are. There's no mention of anything Jewish in terms of a literal rebuilt temple. There's none of that. You have to bring that from outside and already assume that that's got to take place before you actually come here. Revelation 20 does not mention that. In fact, if we let Revelation tell us what the temple of God is, we know it's the people of God. Um, Not an actual temple in Jerusalem, but the people of God, as we've tried to demonstrate in previous weeks. And so just a point here, when we come to this text, let's work with the details of the text first and then see how that fits with everything else, okay? Let me jump in here. So if you you see the description again in verse 4, it says, middle of verse 4, I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God, those who had not worshipped the beast in its image and had not received the mark, they came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. Now turn back to chapter 6 where we were last week, because I think the same group is described in chapter 6. If you remember from, if you were here last week in chapter 6, we argued that the four horsemen describe the wars, the famine, the pestilence, and the, and the, and the uh, evil that goes on throughout the entire church age from Christ's first coming to his second coming. And during that same period of time, we have the same group of people described, mm-hmm. which again makes us think that the thousand-year reign could be happening before Christ returns. It could be happening during the church age because this same group is described in Revelation 6 verse 9. When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar, now listen to the description, the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness they had borne. It's the same group from chapter 20. Yep. They cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? Then they were each given a white robe and told to rest a little longer until the full uh, number of their fellow saints and their brothers should be complete who were to be killed as they themselves had. So our understanding is, just to make this again, it's hard to make some of these basic things really clear necessarily in our mind. We are going to argue that the thousand-year reign of Christ is taking place right now. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, the, the word amillennial is a little bit of a misnomer because ah means a negation. Like amoral means no morality. And atheist is someone who doesn't believe in God, an atheist. So when you put an A in front of something, it negates it. We are not non-millennialists. We're not amillennialists in that sense. But we do, we do take the title amillennialist. What we believe is we do believe in a real millennium. It's happening right now. And the second you die, you enter into it because the saints who are murdered brutally on earth, including all those who are faithful, but it includes in the extreme edge, the, those who are murdered, mm-hmm. but any Christian who is faithful unto death, they may look like they have lost in the world's eyes. The world mocks and looks at them. I think of that, that video from 2014-ish when, uh, when guys from, not the Taliban, but from, uh, uh, from ISIS took, yep. took the Egyptian Christians on, the, on that beach and they... And- they were kneeling. They got them to kneel down, and they, they, the men were praying, and they, they took giant machetes out. I watched the unedited version of the video. Uh, they, they, they decapitate these guys on video, and the guys are praying to Christ while they do this, and the other guys are talking to Allah, praising mm-hmm. Allah while it's happening. Okay, in that moment, who does it look like is winning? Who does it look like is losing? It looks like the Christians are losers in that moment. It looks like they have been destroyed, stomped on. They are despicable in the eyes of these people. Their, their heads are thrown apart from their bodies. Their wives and their children are back home crying. They're interviewed later talking about the, the faithfulness of their husbands unto death. And in that moment, you look at that and you go, man, they look, they look, they look like they're just 
pitiful, shameful, the, the way they're treated. Well, yeah, the second they die, they come to new life in Christ in heaven, and they are reigning with Christ right now. So this is, this is the upside-down kingdom of Christ. The people who are stomped on, the Christians who are just pummeled into the dirt and killed, moments later are in Christ with white robes, being told to wait for the final return. But right now, they are reigning with Christ in heaven with no, no troubles around them. And so this is the upside-down nature. God is inverting what the world is trying to do to the church in these, in these scenes. Well, it does say, uh, comparing with 20, uh, with uh, chapter 6, it does say souls, which indicates... Uh, not a resurrected body, yeah. so, but they were given robes. So what, one of the things Revelation has done for me is give great hope for the intermediate. We always call it the intermediate state. That sounds like a kind of an undefined term, and it sort of is sometimes in systematic theology. This is, this is all believers, right? Mm -hmm. Not just the persecuted saints. Not the ones that just lost their heads. It's your mom, your dad, your brother, your sister, anyone that's a believer but worshiping before the throne of God. And that's, that's great news. That's, that's the ultimate in consummation, that and the resurrected body. When thinking of God's people too, again, thinking of this Revelation 20 and the experience of these people in the context of Revelation, like there's an escalation. If, if you want to do an interesting study in this, follow this and think through this. There's an escalation of the experience of God's people from, like you said, from the earthly perspective, it's like we're losing into this picture of us reigning with Christ in heaven. You go, even before the, the main visionary section starts, when Jesus is talking to the churches, it's like, you know, you're going to be thrown in prison, you're going to be slandered. This, I mean, and it's just this gruesome, bad picture for the people of God. And then you get to chapter 6, and you see God's people who've been slain, they've gone through this. You know, God, when is judgment going to come? When's vindication going to come? And then you get to chapter 7, and it seems like it starts to shift a little bit, the experience that is, is, is shown of God's people in heaven. And we have to see this as consistent here, always referring to the same group, because again, Revelation continually looks at the same things with different perspectives, taking us a little deeper, giving us more information, helping us understand better. Chapter 7, they are, um, you know, they've washed their robes, this is verse uh, 14, they're washed their robes, made them white in the blood of the Lamb. They're before the throne of God. They serve Him day and night in His temple. He sits on the throne. And I mean, like, here they are being shepherded personally by Jesus in heaven. But then you, you fast forward, and I believe it is Revelation um, 16. I always forget where this one is, but it talks about, no, it's um, 15. So you see in 15, there's another sign in heaven um, the seven, the last seven plagues are about to be poured out. God's wrath finished. And in verse 2, I saw what appeared to be a sea of glass mingled with fire. And also those who had conquered the beast in its image and the number of its name standing beside the sea of glass with harps of God in their hands. They sing the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb. And so here they are. They've gone from persecuted, thrown in prison, put to death, Seeking, you know, God, when are you going to bring vindication to now being shepherded by Jesus? And now they're not just being shepherded, they've conquered. It's like they've gone through the Exodus. They're standing triumphant on the other side of the sea, and they are praising God for the victory. And then you fast forward, you see glimpses of this Revelation 19. They're, they've washed their robes white, they're ready to come with Jesus. And then chapter 20, they're actually reigning with him. 
So you see this escalation of the experience of the people of God in heaven. And it's not one or the other. It's all at the same time. And again, Revelation is highly symbolic. Um, and so we have to keep the, the nature of this in mind. So, but when we keep all that in mind, we come to Revelation 20 and it's talking about who those are who are reigning with Jesus. It's the people of God throughout the age of the church who trusted in Christ and were faithful to him unto death. That's helpful. So let me again just back up again for kind of a wide angle perspective. Two things that you've heard us say, I don't know how many times since we started Revelation. Uh, two things that we keep saying. Where you go on these two premises are going to determine how you view a lot of these things. One is, like Greg was just saying, one is, is Revelation primarily literal or primarily symbolic in its numbers and images? And number two, is Revelation in chronological order or does it go back and repeat in recapitulation? Now, we, we've said enough of almost about that. Like We've talked about that a lot. So like chapter six covers all of church history into chapter seven and on and on. The, the six seals are all of church history. The six trumpets cover the same thing. The bowls is similar. You're, you're repeating history. If you can grant the fact that Revelation often returns and repeats something from a different camera angle a lot, which it does, I think, and then number two, that a lot of the numbers are symbolic. If you can grant those two things, then I think Revelation 20 very quickly starts to make sense as both something that's re repeating what we've already seen before from a different angle and one that is also giving symbolic numbers. So let's look back again at chapter 20. Put it this way. You don't, don't turn to all this. Just, just hang with me here. So in chapter 12, we see church history from the perspective of the dragon, Satan. Remember, he tries to eat the child who's born, which is Jesus. Jesus ascends to heaven. The dragon goes to make war against his, the woman, which is the church. And Jesus' death casts Satan out of heaven. He no longer has grounds to accuse us. He comes down to earth. His time is short. Revelation 12 covers church history from the cross to the final judgment from the perspective of Satan and angels and demons. Then remember... The very next chapter, chapter 13, covers the exact same time period, but this time, not from the perspective mainly of the dragon, Satan, but from the perspective of his minions on earth, which is the two beasts, the beast and the false prophet. And it covers the same time period of persecution of the church, but this time from the perspective of the beast and the false prophet. Now, the same thing I'm arguing is happening in Revelation 19 and 20. If you look at Revelation 19, again, if you look at verse 20 one more time, when Jesus comes back to judge, who is the target of the false trinity here? Look at verse 20. It's the beast who was captured along with the false prophet, and he's thrown, they're thrown alive into the lake of fire. Satan is not mentioned in this context right here, but the beast and the false prophet are mentioned. So we're getting final judgment in chapter 19 from the camera angle, the perspective on the beast and the false prophet, just like chapter 13 was about the beast and the false prophet, not mainly about Satan. Now chapter 20 is going to again be final judgment, but this time from the camera angle of the dragon and not the beast and the false prophet. Mm -hmm. So just like chapter 12 <laughs> emphasized the dragon and not the beast and the false prophet. So it, you see similarly different angles on the same event. And uh, verse 10 shows you where the devil shows up in chapter 20. Well, he's, he's in it several times, but in ver chapter 20, verse 10, and the devil who had deceived, deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. So we would argue that this final battle in 19 and 20 is the same battle from two different perspectives, emphasizing two different sets of enemies of God's people. Uh, you want to start back at the be beginning of the chapter? Yeah, all right. So some introductory stuff, not so introductory. Um, let's, let's start working our way a little more slowly through this because um, that's important for us to do. So I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit or the abyss and a great chain. And he seized the dragon, that ancient serpent, who was the devil and Satan, 
and bound him for a thousand years and threw him into the pit and shut it and sealed it over him so that he might not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be released for a little while. So starting there in verse one, I saw an angel coming down from heaven. Uh, angels not specifically identified, um, but this is, must be a powerful angel because what he's doing, he has the means to un unlock the abyss and to chain Satan up and to put him in the abyss. Now, again, keeping the symbolic aspect in mind, we know Satan isn't exact. He's not literally a dragon. He's pictured as a dragon because of his evil and his, his malevolence and his wickedness. Uh, we know he's a fallen angel and, fall, and angels are by nature beautiful creatures. If you, know, you were to see one, you know, what, what's, what's the thing that's always said when an angel appears, don't be afraid because they're, they're glorious beings. Satan, um, if we, you were to see him, you would not see a literal red dragon. But the red dragon describes his, his character. It describes who he is, like what he's like and what he's about. Dragons are typically pictured as enemies of mankind and they want to devour and they want to destroy. And that is exactly who Satan is and also the devil and Satan the accuser. Um, and so it's, if, if he's not a literal dragon and serpent at the same time, then we probably don't need to see the key as being a literal key because elsewhere in the book of Revelation, um, was it Jesus says, I have the key to death in Hades. It's not a literal key, you know, and death in Hades is a door and he unlocks death. That, that's not what he's talking about. It's, it's a metaphorical usage of this. Um, and this great chain is probably not a literal, you know, linked thing. It, it's, it's symbolic for, for God being able to keep Satan where he wants him to be. Um, and so he sees the dragon, the ancient serpent, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years, threw him into a pit, shut it over him, and sealed it, or shut it and sealed it over him that he might not deceive the nations any longer. I'll let you pick up right there, but let me just, yep. let me say an objection, because if you're from the premillennial perspective, I, th I think it's, at least when you first hear it, it sounds like a very strong and compelling objection against what we're arguing for. The objection is very obvious. Um, excuse me, everybody. Satan is not bound right now. 1 Peter 5 says he's a roaring lion going all over the earth, seeking whom he may devour. I mean, Satan is at work. We, we're told that we need to resist him firm in our faith. We're told in Ephesians 6 to put on the armor of God to resist the devil and his schemes. I mean, good night. If Satan is bound right now in a pit somewhere, what are we so afraid of with, with angels and demons? It sounds like he's, he's taken care of. If, if this is the church age, Satan's out of our hair for a thousand years and we don't have to worry about it. That seems to conflict with other clear teachings of scripture that say Satan is not bound. He's roaring around like a lion to try to devour people's faith. So, Greg, how would you respond to it? I think that's a strong objection. Uh, you know, to, mm -hmm. we, need, we need to thoughtfully respond to it. That's actually where I was about to go, so I'm glad <laughs> you brought that up. All right, so that, that is a good argument, okay? It is a good argument, and it's one that it's not illegitimate, okay? When we say this, like, it's not impossible from the text, okay? It's not impossible, and, and if, if someone is convinced of that, you know, then, then they're convinced of that. But there are some indicators here in, in this, but also... Um, in other parts of Scripture, again, this is where we want to bring other, other Scripture in. Scripture interprets Scripture. It's the best interpreter, the best commentator. Um, so we think about, you know, deceiving the nations. I mean, obviously, you know, Satan is deceiving them right now. Um, you know, the whole world's under the power of the evil one. But if we read in context Revelation 20, we see there's a very particular point with this deception that Satan is restricted, hit, prohibited from doing. Look down at verse 7. And verse 8, this is the focus of the deception that Satan cannot do right now. It says, and when the thousand years are ended, Satan will be released from his prison 
and will come out to what? To deceive the nations. Okay? So whatever this deception is, he hasn't been able to do it during this thousand-year period. He came out to deceive the nations that are at the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to do what? This is the purpose of the deception, okay? To gather them for battle, for the battle, and their number is like the sand of the sea. And what do they want to do? They want to utterly destroy the people of God. That is the focus. That is the contextual definition or the contextual answer to well, what is the deceit that he's not allowed to practice right now? He can't gather the nations to destroy the people of God. At the end, he's going to be given that freedom to try. Obviously, we know he's going to fail. But in the context of this, he's, he can't gather the world together against the church. So this would parallel, stretching our memories here, 2 Thessalonians 2, you don't have to turn there. The man of lawlessness is coming, and it says, but there's a restrainer holding him back so he can't yet come, but one day the restrainer will be removed and the man of lawlessness will appear. That restraint is parallel to the binding of Satan in regards to his ability to deceive the nations to universally attack the church. So to flip with me here to Matthew chapter 12. Uh, Matthew chapter 12 is a phenomenal parallel text that I think really sheds light on Revelation 20 of all things. Look at what Jesus says in Matthew 12. And the reason this is so significant is because in both texts, Satan is being talked about And in both texts, the exact same Greek word is used. And I'll tell you what that word is in just a second. Look at Matthew 12. Uh, Look at verse, uh, let's start in 26. Matthew 12, 26. And if Satan casts out Satan, he's divided against himself. How then will his kingdom stand? And if I cast out demons by Beelzebub, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore, they will be your judges. But if it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Now look at 29. It's a metaphor about Satan. Or how can someone enter a strong man's house? That's Satan, and his house is the world here. How can, how can someone enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods? That's converting people to Christ, I believe. Unless he first, what? Binds the strong man. Then indeed he may plunder his house. Now, That word for bind is the exact same Greek word, deo, here. It's the exact same Greek word used in Revelation 20. In both texts, Satan is being bound. Do you think those two texts might shed some light on each other? In both texts, Satan is being deo, bound, in both texts. So surely they're shedding light on each other. What is going on in Matthew 12, 29? Well, the answer is, when does Satan get bound? He's being bound in the very ministry of Jesus in the, around AD 30, and he's especially going to be bound when Jesus dies on the cross. Because Satan's ability to keep the nations in the dark concerning the gospel is about to be flipped on its head. When Jesus dies on the cross, what happens? Go into all the nations and preach the gospel. And what's going to happen? People are going to be converted from all nations. Satan's ability to keep all the nations in the dark, he's going to be bound in respect to that. Satan is not going to be able to keep all the nations fundamentally in the dark about the gospel until the end of time. Because starting at the crucifixion and ministry of Jesus, uh, Satan is bound in regard to the, to the gospel. Now Jesus can plunder the strong man's house and start converting people from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. And that will lead all the way up until the end when the binding is undone and Satan is allowed to have, again, massive influence on the unbelieving world to persecute the church. But I think this is really significant because Matthew 12, Satan again is being bound. It's happening during the church age again. It's happening from the crucifixion of Christ until Christ's return. And uh, it's the same Greek term. So I I think this is a very strong parallel text to put next to Revelation 20. In other words, the binding of Satan is not an absolute binding. 
He is still a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour right now. We can be tempted by Satan right now. Demons are present right now. We can fall into sin because of the tempting of demons today. Satan is real and active in the world. But in regards to specifically deceiving all the nations, keeping them from the gospel and universally persecuting the church, Satan can't do that if he tries. Because right now he's bound in reference to the total deception of the nations and in response to getting the whole world to gather against God's people. He can get it in North Korea. He can get it in certain places at certain times, the mm -hmm. deception, but he cannot universally do that until God lets the restrainer go and the man of lawlessness arrives. And then that, that total rebellion of the unbelieving world occurs at that point. No, go ahead, Fred. And, and, the, and the binding comes to keep him from deceiving the nations as far as Christ and the gospel. I have this little book, World Watch List. It's a 2020 or 2022 version and, and even though there are Christians persecuted all over the world, there, are, there is a Christian presence in almost every country. Uh, now, that's not every Ta ethne, but that's right. every, every country. And so the gospel is, is going forth. It's being spread because of this binding of Satan. Yeah. Well, I mean, this is also, you know, one of the reasons why. Why do so many countries and nations not want Christians coming in? Because they know the Christian gospel changes things. And when people get converted to Christ, everything changes. And even the culture of nations changes as people come to know, come to faith in Jesus. Now, behind that is Satan. He's doing everything he can to try to keep the gospel away from people. Why? Because he's afraid of the gospel. It takes people out of his kingdom and brings them into Christ's kingdom. That's why there's such opposition to the preaching of the gospel. You know, that like in our, in our own day, it's like, oh, you know, we're, we believe in freedom of worship and all of that, which modern day, you know, means, well, go into your churches. Don't just don't bring it outside the church. When, you know, when it comes to being a believer, it's not enough to just do it in here. We have to take it outside the walls of this building. We take it outside the bounds of our fellowship. That's what Christ commands us to do. Um, and that's the very thing the world doesn't want us to do. Look at Luke chapter 10, <clears throat> verse 18. As you know, Jesus sent out 72 disciples, gave them authority to, uh, to preach and cast out demons and, you know, proclaim the kingdom. This is um, chapter, chapter 10. Look at verse 17. The 20, 72 returned with joy, saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. And look, first thing out of Jesus' mouth. This is, they're exercising the, the message and authority of the kingdom of God. He says, and he said to them, I saw Satan fall from heaven like lightning. So what, what's happening in their ministry, it's a precursor to what's actually going to happen when Jesus dies, resurrects, in a sense. Because again, think of the, the, the similarity of the language here. Cat, fall from heaven, he's cast down. What happens in Revelation chapter 12? He's literally cast to the earth, from heaven to the earth. Um, and so I think we see a connection there again. Um, yes, he, he is active, but he's restricted. Let's look at another one. Um, John chapter 12. We've looked at this one before, but let's, let's make the connection as clear as we can. Um, in uh, verse chapter 12, beginning in verse 31, Jesus, anticipating his crucifixion, says what? Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. Now, before I move on, I want to make sure I draw attention to this. The word for cast out. It's a derivative of the same root word used in Revelation 12. Same root word. Cast down, cast away, forcefully so against his will. 
Okay, Satan doesn't want this to happen. But Jesus, as he says, verse 32, when I'm lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. He said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die through the death of Jesus. And by implication, his resurrection and ascension, they're always connected. It's not like the death without those other things happening through the work of Jesus. Satan is cast out. Now we think, wait a minute, if you're cast out of something, you're no longer in it, right? And yet Satan's cast out, but he's still here. So it's, it's a specific limiting and restricting of Satan's power and his ability to do things on the earth. And on, on that point, look again, how is, just one more time, let's read it one more time, 1231 again. Now is the judgment of the, this world, now will the ruler of this world be cast out, that's clearly Satan, and I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. Do you hear it again? How is Satan being cast out? When Jesus dies on the cross, he's going to draw all people. All people there means all kinds of people, all ethnicities, everyone around the world is going to be drawn to Christ through his death. Well, you see, Satan's, Satan's power was deceiving the nations. When Jesus is lifted up, what happens? Satan's power is broken in that regard because people from all nations are going to be drawn to the lifted up Christ. And so in that regard, in that sense, Satan has no power. Satan's, Satan's cast out. That is very similar to what we're seeing in Revelation 20. He's cast down. He's, he's cast into a pit, unable to deceive the nations anymore. Yeah, and I, I think like this, this is, it's not the major point, but it, this does affect our understanding of missions and evangelism, okay? Um, the, the dispensational view, because of how it divides up history, sees each progressive or each sequential dispensation or, or aspect of God's program with the world as ending in failure. The only one that doesn't end in failure is the kingdom dispensation, the last one, okay? Every other dispensation um, in which God deals with man, it ends in failure for man, for whoever his people are, whatever the focus is. And in the dispensational mindset, the church is ultimately going to fail in the mission God has given it. That's why it's up to the Jews in the, in the seven-year tribulation to fulfill the task of evangelizing the nations. But I don't see that in Scripture. Like That's, a, that's an inference based upon a system, not an exegetical conclusion drawn from the text. What we see throughout the New Testament, throughout Revelation, is the church completing its witness. It fulfills the task God has given it. I mean, we go back to Revelation chapter 11. We looked at the two witnesses. The, the, the beast doesn't overcome those witnesses until they finish their testimony. Meaning what? They did what God set them out to do. They succeeded in the mission God gave them to succeed in. Um, and where is it at? It says... Um, verse 6, they have power to do these things. Verse 7, and when they have finished their testimony, the church completes the mission that God gave. The Great Commission is fulfilled. There will be a time when God says, the testimony is done. The testimony is done. Those who are going to be reached are reached. And at that point, we don't know when that is. Um, it is when that happens that this beast, this that we've looked at comes out and actually gains complete total victory. Earth, you know, all the nations together, like we said, finally, they're able to shut the church up. Finally, they're able to overcome the church, not in sporadic places here and there, but over the whole globe. Yeah, okay, go to Revelation 12. I know we're moving around a lot here, but Revelation 12, again, we've read this a few times. I just want to recap the main point of it here. We believe again, verses 5 and 6 describe the time of Christ's birth and then his death and resurrection and ascension. And then a war arises in heaven. Look at verse 9, Revelation 12, 9. The great dragon was thrown down, uh, the, the, that ancient serpent who was called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. Again, you've got the reference to deceiving the whole world in his being thrown down. 
He was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before our God, and they have conquered him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony, for they loved not their lives unto death. But then again, verse 12 mentions that Satan is active in the world. So I believe that this throwing down of Satan in Revelation 12 is the same as his being bound for the thousand years in regards to deceiving the nations. We can turn back to 20, I believe. Yeah. 245. Yes, we are running low on time. Let me just, let's reread the first few, just to kind of get the flow of it in our heads. Revelation 20, again, verse 1. Then I saw the, an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain. And he seized the dragon, that ancient serpent, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years, and threw him into the pit and shut it and sealed it over him, so that he might not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be released for a little while. Now skip to verse 7. We'll get to the end of the millennium. And when the thousand years were ended, this is right before, we believe, right before the final return of Christ. And when the thousand years are ended, Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to do what? What does his release mean? Deceive the nations again. Again, that's intimately connected. He comes out to deceive the nations that are at the four corners of the earth. That's the whole world. Gog and Magog, referring back to Ezekiel, to gather them for battle. Their number is like the sand of the sea. And they march up over the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city. But fire came down from heaven and consumed them. And the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were. And they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. So uh, I believe that we're getting there the glimpse of that final judgment of Christ with the fire there at the end of 20, which parallels several other places in, in Revelation. And it's over. And then it's over. We have many endings, but this is the ending. Yes. yes. Final judgment comes in verses 11 to 15 of chapter 20. That's the final judgment, the great white throne of judgment. And uh, then you have the ushering in of the new creation in 21. I've got more I want to say, but it might be too long to say it. So we'll hold it for next week. I do want to encourage you to do this. Read 2 Thessalonians um, chapter 1 through chapter 2, verse 12. Okay? Keep, read those verses for next week because I want to make sure I look at this, that we look at this together. Um, and you see some consistency here between how Paul talks about the destruction of the Antichrist and how Revelation talks about the destruction of the Antichrist and Satan. There's a connection in 2 Thessalonians 1 and 2 that I want to draw attention to, but I don't feel like we have time now. So we'll do that next week. That's good. Papa, can you close us in prayer? I'll be glad to. Thank you, Mark. Father God, thank you for this um, uh, overview, I guess, of, uh, of the millennium of chapter uh, 20. Uh, thank you that, uh, that the gospel is going out to the world because of the binding of Satan. Christians are being persecuted in almost every country in this little booklet that I, that I held up. And, and yet, there are believers, and there are more believers uh, there are more believers today than there's ever been in the history of, of the world. And it's because of your authority that you've given to us, to, to your church, to your bride, to go and preach the gospel. So thank you for that. And I just pray for that we'd all uh, feel the urgency uh, of, the, of the need to go and, and, and preach the gospel. 
Father, thank you for this uh, afternoon. Uh, pray for the service. I pray for the uh, sermon, for the prayers, for the um, uh, just the attitudes of our hearts that we would want to glorify you in everything. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.